Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Pensions Expert podcast. This week we will be talking about how the pensions regulator is concerned about master trust investment weakness, schemes being asked to send pension transfer warnings to members amid concerns that younger savers are trying to access their pensions and how trustees are being called to take into account their sponsor affordability. I'm Maria Espadinha, Deputy Editor at Pensions Expert, and joining me are Pat Charman, Managing Director at Cassis, and Greg McClymont, Director of Policy at the People's Pensions. Hi, Pat. Hi, Greg. Thank you for joining us. The first topic we're going to discuss is a story we wrote uh, last week about uh, mass trusts and how the investment strategies of some of these schemes are worrying the pensions regulator. Pat, I will start with you. What do you think that, do you think the regulator is right in having these concerns? I don't think I can actually comment on the regulators' concerns themselves, um, Maria, but I think for me, good governance is the starting point and everything else stems from that. In my you know, current role at Cassis, um, we focus on providing governance solutions to pension schemes, which means delivering good quality data. And I think that is an element that maybe potentially the master trusts can also look at more closely is actually the good governance um, of the assets and the investments. And perhaps that's where the regulator is coming from. Greg, can I take a view on this? Yeah, I have a lot of sympathy with what Pat's you know, just outlined. Governance is obviously critical. I mean, I guess the, it's the regulator's job to be concerned. So one expects regulators to be focusing on these kinds of issues, not least given how important investment returns are um, to delivering pensions. Uh, I'd probably add to, to to Pat's observation about governance is that good governance is, is usually or are most frequently seen in the context of scale in pensions. So I think the, the, the comments which were uh, quoted around the you know, regulator review, there was an emphasis on smaller master trusts. I think the, uh, the gentleman concerned mentioned smaller and mid-size. Uh, I, I think it probably um, highlights or, or leads to a discussion about do we, do we have enough scale yet in the master trust sector? And I would say when you look at the global comparisons, um, we still have far too many schemes. Would you think that this kind of issue would not be as relevant if if consolidation was more, if more consolidation happened in the master trust sector? Well, there's 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 no there's no absolutes in anything, I suppose. And um, I guess what I would say is, master trust authorisation has been a very good thing. It's obviously brought down the. Uh, the number of funds out there significantly. But if you compare the UK to any of the leading pension systems around the world uh, and beyond master trusts in DC more generally, and of course in DBA, we're simply subscale. And scale, pensions isn't a cottage industry. Um, having scale does not, does, not, um, does not mean that you will be running a high quality, well-governed scheme um, per se, but it certainly increases the chances. And on the investment side, it gives you, you know, more options for sure. And Pat, how could governance help this um, smaller pension schemes, in your view? Well, I think one of the challenges that smaller pension schemes have is they generally invest in funds. And because the UK pensions um, you know, industry doesn't generally look through um, into the assets within those funds, they don't actually truly understand the, the risk and liquidity um, and actually, you know, anything that's going on with those funds on a daily basis. 
But I do think, um, and I agree with Greg, that consolidation um, has got to be the way forward. And that's exactly what the Dutch did, you know, many years ago. So they actually only have 180 DB schemes left in the Dutch market. So I think that's something the UK needs to look at. Moving on to the next topic, which is again the regulator, TPR has issued guidance for schemes asking them to give pension transfer warnings to savers. I imagine this is more on the DB side of things, but uh, Greg, how do you view this initiative? It's in line, isn't it, Maria, with the direction of travel in recent months and in the last year in particular, in terms of a greater focus on the, the risks around DB transfers, you know, beginning a while ago now, of course, with the you know, the high profile uh, case of the of the British steel workers in Port Talbot and then more generally with the SCA's analysis and digging into the um, the advice that's been given on, on DB to DC transfers. So I'd see it as part of a general trend towards, you know, greater risk warnings and um, with respect to DB to DC transfers. The regulator on the FCA side is very clear, isn't it, that in most cases, a transfer will, will not be in uh, a, an individual's interest. Clearly, pension freedom, certainly in its its first few years, you know, has seen a great interest in transfers, and regulators obviously concerned about that. And we have both regulators together here, you know, focused on the on the issue. And what about um? So there's been some disturbing uh announcements, if we can call it like that, that uh, younger members before the age of 55, which is the age that, according to pension freedoms, they can they can uh, cash out their pension. They've been trying to access their their savings due to the current uh, COVID-19 crisis. Is that something that we should be alarmed about? Um, what do you think, Pat? I'm a trustee for a very small um, DC trust-based scheme and we actually haven't seen an increase um, in withdrawals or, or scans or any, or any of the kind um, during this period. And I also checked in with our administrator um, who confirmed that they hadn't seen an increase either. So, but what I do think is really important um, is that we've increased our focus on member communication. Um, so we've actually sent Pacific communications to, to our members asking them, you know, not to panic, not make any panic decisions. And actually, if they are thinking about withdrawing, then they actually, we signposting them to the pension advisory slash pension wise, and also encouraging them to take financial advice. So personally, we're not seeing an increase, but we have taken the precaution um, and sent a Pacific communication to all members. And, and Greg, um, working for a large master trust as the People's Pensions, is this something that you've been aware of? Uh, have you been contacted by younger members? Are they concerned about this, their livelihood and trying to access their pensions? Yes, I mean, we have some, uh, you know, some examples of that. Uh, certainly an increased interest relative to before COVID crisis hit. But you would expect that, wouldn't you, Maria? You know, there's lots of people in a very stressed financial situation. And it's entirely understandable and to be expected there'll be a, a greater interest. Um, not an overwhelming interest by any means, you know, an uptick, but, but not overwhelming. And of course, it does lead one into that. And I think the government's played a very skillful hand so far in terms of recognising that you, you can't solve the short-term problems of financial stress um, or shouldn't solve them by increasing the long-term problems of um, an absence of, of reasonable retirement income. So trying to keep pension pots separate from the day-to-day -day is critical. 
all the evidence again from around the world is that pension systems where early access is allowed and um, the money is never repaid the u.s system the biggest system in the world is the perfect example of that and the usdc system the 401k of the money taken out for various reasons in the u.s the vast majority of that money is never replenished what can pension schemes do as pat was saying you signposting them to to guidance service available is there anything else that pension schemes can do to help these members yeah i mean clearly for those under the age of 55 uh, you know their, their options in the pensions sense are you know are, are very narrow <laughs> you know you can't you can't get to the money and and then then it's a question i think of individuals looking at the money advice service looking at other places to get you know citizens advice bureau and the like but i mean we know the big thing is the the massive increase in enrollment you know attempted enrollment for universal credit and the benefit system and then of course the the, the thing which the government has done which has been very effective is the job retention scheme. I mean, actually, that, that, that has worked. The loan schemes haven't worked so far, although the, the bounce back scheme for very small businesses, I think, is the potential. But the loan schemes generally haven't had a great impact. But the job retention scheme has had an enormous impact. And actually, policy needs to be at that macro level in terms of this crisis. Uh, you know, pension scheme access is not going to anywhere near you know the, the magnitude of the problem and and Greg would you agree that we need to do more as an industry to to educate our members and I think um you know the PLSA's initiative on retirement living standards is a good one but I think we need to take it take it a step further I'm, I'm always a bit on the on the on the skeptical side on, on mm-hmm. the education stuff part insofar as you know, for lots of people in this instance, they, you know, they have a, they have a legitimate uh, need, you know, to reduce their financial stress, which I know you're very uh, well aware of. And I'm not sure education is, is, is going to change that mindset a lot longer term. Anything that can be done to make people more familiar with their options and pensions is a, is a good thing. Mm-hmm. I'd probably place that alongside and underneath part your your, your initial emphasis on governance. Yeah. Pensions are so complicated and there's so many options. Yeah. And that what's really needed is experts, inverted commas, who people can trust to manage their money and their interests in an efficient way. And like you pointed out right at the beginning, that, that should be the focus. And education um, is always something we should aspire to, but we should... I think be aware of you know the 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 history of educational initiatives having an impact on a mass basis on how people think about pensions is pretty limited. But how do we get people to trust us? Because you know I'm a trustee and you know my 100% focus is ensuring the best possible retirement income I can. And there's a lot lot like me. So how do I how do we get the the general public to trust pensions? I think that to me is the, the huge challenge alongside education. But yeah, you're right, and it takes you to ownership, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. So I, I, we might say the answer is a sense of ownership, but of yeah. course that then leads you back a bit into your observation about you know how do you get people to you know to be aware of and be interested in it? Mm-hmm. Um, I think asking for trust is quite a high bar. Because yeah. trust, trust in all kinds of institutions is, you know, is, is pretty is pretty low and declining. 
my view would be I would go back actually again to governance and say the starting point, you mm -hmm. know, people aren't stupid. They they understand when an institution is working in their interests or they feel it's working in their interests rather than in someone else's. And I think that takes you back to governance and and trying to take out those conflicts of interest as far as possible. And the UK historically has not been great at that. You know, no. if you compare it to the Dutch or the Australians yeah. or the Scandinavians, you know, we don't have a pension, an occupational pension system which starts and ends with trustee based pensions. We have the you know, the individual retail side as well. Yes. Um I I think that's that's always going to make things trickier. Yeah, agreed. One of the last topics for discussion is uh, TPR's annual funding statement, where they have directed that defined benefit trustees to focus on the affordability of payments into their schemes by their sponsor employers. And they also urge collaboration between the two parties. Um, Greg, do you think this is a sensible approach from the regulator? Yeah, I mean, everyone's feeling around, aren't they, Maria, for, for, the, for the right way to try and balance competing interests. And if we take it at the very highest level, um, you know, one one can't have DB schemes that can meet their obligations unless their sponsors are, you know, uh, surviving and indeed thriving. The challenge, of course, is to is to separate out, um, you know, sponsoring of schemes who are genuinely struggling versus um, those who might actually be continuing to operate successfully um, and who can meet their you know, their, their obligations and in, in terms of closing the funding deficit, you know, without any change to the, you know, to the timetable. So it gets very granular very quickly. Um, but at the broadest level, the, the balance is always hard to strike. I mean, it's a big challenge with covenant, you know, covenant issues in DBE as it's, it's pretty complex, isn't it? I think just one thing I'd add um, to, to what Greg's just said is I think there will be much more focus on, on value for money and much more focus on, on costs there. I mean, we have seen that there are plans for, for DB schemes to have to undertake value for money assessments in a similar way that DC have to today. And I think there'll be far more pressure on trustees of DB schemes to actually undertake um, full cost analysis. We know that there's approximately 30% of costs which are not even collected or um, reported in respect of pension schemes in general. So I think that we will definitely see a drive to, to look at costs in much more detail and, and assess value for money for, for members. And that obviously will then impact the, the sponsor of those DB pension schemes. Thanks for that, Pat. At the end of the podcast, we have a section which you call Always a Pensions Angle which is a story that um, at first at first hand is not related to pensions, but ends up having a pensions connection. So I'll, I'll leave it to you, Greg, to bring us our story this week. Yeah, thanks, Maria. I, I, I thought in the context of VE Day, you know, coming upon us very quickly, interesting to think about the beverage report, which we know had such an enormous impact in shaping the post-war welfare state. But thinking of it in the context of, you know, an enormously successful um, piece of work and with huge beneficial impact for society. But in the context of how things change and how policies have to be updated, you know, for a, for a shifting um, society. So just take the example of beverage was predicated on the notion, the whole approach of a, of a, of a family where the, the male went out to work and the, the, the female stayed at home and, and looked after the children. 
it was a one breadwinner model. And it had a huge impact on the pension system because it really helps explain why the UK approach at the state pension level, at least, has always been about contribution and contribution being defined by going out to work and being in the workplace. And we know, of course, now that if we think about the gender pensions gap, you know, that the fundamental issue there, when you strip away all the other issues, is how do we recognise the contribution to society, which is made by those, usually women still, who stay at home or aren't in the traditional workplace and are bringing up children and caring for um, older family relatives and the like. And I think when we think about beverage, beverage, you know, a, a huge social revolution for the good. But we have to think in a pension sense of how do we update that vision to reflect a changed society with much more fluid patterns of working and a recognition that, you know, there needs to be, you know, equality for, for men and women in pensions. And I think if we take it in that direction, it leads us really into that question of how can the state pension um, or auto-enrolment system be made um, to recognise the contribution of those who, who are doing unpaid work. Very interesting point. That's all the time we have for today. Uh, thank you, Pat. Thank you, Greg. And yeah. tune in next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odour control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.